We praise what we worship. You may not have thought about yourself as a worshiper, but whether we are here this morning as a Christian or an agnostic, what we praise shows what we worship. To put it at a popular level, what kinds of things do we post? What kinds of things are we hitting the like button on repeatedly? What kinds of things do we retweet or save? Because what we praise reveals what we worship. But not only that, what we worship is what we look to to sustain us. That's the rub that I want us to think about this morning. That whatever we worship is what we look to to sustain us. And those two realities, that what we praise we worship, and what we worship we look to to sustain us, come to bear in our text this morning. Would you please locate the last book of the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you turn back to the inside panel of your order of worship, and that'll be the main part of the text that we'll be looking at this morning. Today we'll come to Revelation 1, particularly verses 5 to 8. Now John is writing this book to seven churches in modern-day western Turkey. And at varying levels, these churches are struggling with walking away from Jesus, or at least with worshiping something alongside of Jesus. Some already have. Others, like Antipas, have already given up their life as they've borne witness to Christ even unto death. To such churches faced with the threat of death and the temptation of defection, John writes. And now by the Holy Spirit, John sets to work and encouraging churches like our own to hold fast to Christ and to heed his words. John wants to put grit in our faith and hope in our hearts. As John begins to write his letter in verses 4 and 5 that we looked at last week, he gives them a greeting meant for their persevering. He sets before them two reasons for their encouragement to hold fast to Christ. First, there's the promise of Trinitarian favor, and then there's the promise of his Trinitarian presence. And as John gives that greeting meant for their persevering, now he's going to turn to focus their faith on one particular member of the Trinity in particular. Today I want us to see two more reasons that John is giving for us to hold fast to Christ and his words. If last week John gave us a greeting for our persevering, this week John is giving a focus for our faith to endure. And what is the focus for our faith? Simply put, it's Jesus Christ. But what should we focus on Christ about? Two things. Here's what we'll see this morning. We should focus our faith on the work of Christ and the wrath of Christ, Christ's work and his wrath. And those two realities about Christ, his his work and his wrath become a cause for worship in Revelation 1. Because we'll see this morning, right in the middle of Revelation 1, John stops everything he's doing and he praises this Christ for his work and he praises him for his wrath. He breaks into doxology, showing us what we ought to do as well, because remember, whatever we worship is what will sustain us. Praising and worshiping Christ will sustain us with joyful courage and resilient faith until he comes. So let's read Revelation 1, 1 to 8, one more time. This morning, the focus of our faith will be on the the end of this. But let's look now at the work of the Son and the wrath of the Son so that we can hold fast to Christ. Revelation 1, verses 1 to 8. This is again what Holy Scripture says. 
revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now our text today. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. John focuses our faith on the work of Christ and the wrath of Christ. He does so to sustain our faith and suffering so that we can do what he commands in verse 3, hear and heed my words by focusing your faith now on the wrath and work of Christ. So first, the end of verse 5, John focuses our faith on Christ's work. Now, at the beginning of verse 5, John is writing, I think, of, of Jesus' character and his person. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Those descriptions stand next to Christ in opposition to him, describing his person. But now as John keeps writing in verse 5, he shifts his focus slightly from Christ's person now to his work. And having described each member of the Godhead, John now puts Jesus on center stage. The spotlight focuses on Jesus, not only for the rest of this chapter, but for the rest of this book. After all, this, verse 1, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. The soul-saving object of faith. The sole faith-sustaining object is Christ alone. So now John focuses our gaze on Christ alone to encourage us to hear and heed his words until he comes. So John focuses our faith, the faith of these struggling churches, on three aspects of Christ's work. Look again at verse 5 and you'll see them. Three aspects of Christ's work. First, look at how he loves us. Second, Look at how he's freed us. And third, look at how he's made us a kingdom. So let's think of each one of those with John. To start, John reminds us that Christ, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, is also the one who loves us. It's one thing, friends, to know the king. It's one thing, another thing to be loved by that king. 
Beloved, we may be and we will be rejected by emperors like Nero and Domitian, harassed at times by government, by its laws or shunned by family members. But what sustains us is this reality. Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, loves us. And his great love for us helps us even love our enemies, even as he loved us from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Remember again from last week, the fierce faith of William Cooper, that friend of John Newton, who sung into the darkness of his own sin and against his depression. Let them in horrid league agree. They may assault and they may distress, but they cannot quench thy love to me. They cannot quench thy love to me or rob me of my Lord, my peace. The only one that will never die on you is Jesus. The love of Christ is a love of a king and not any king. The love of Christ is a love of a king who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here is a sovereign love, a love as we sing without bottom or shore. He knows you to the depth of your being and he loves you to the very height of his being. My love is often low. My joy ebbs and flows, but no change Jehovah knows. I change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His love, not mine. The resting place. Listen, all of us are afraid at times of losing someone's love or not being loved by somebody who should love us. Those are painful and fearful situations. It could be from small to great. It could take the form of of no one talking to you at lunch. No one asking you on a date or knowing nobody saying yes to you when you've asked everybody on a date. Your spouse not loving you, a loved one dying on you. That hurts. Not to be loved when you should. Not to be noticed when you want to. To have the loved of a loved one die, it hurts. But now to seven churches experiencing those kinds of things, John reminds them of a love that lasts. The love of Jesus. Oh, to know the love of Christ. Not to know about the love of Christ. But to know the love of Christ. To know that after all reject you or slander us, who misunderstand you, who overlook you, that he still loves us. And maybe we won't know how much he loves us until everybody else forsakes us. You mean you, Lord, would still love me after this? I thought there was nobody left. How can it be that your love bade me? Welcome. Rejected by Rome, these believers have been accepted by Christ. And here might I stay and sing because there is no story so divine. Never was love, never was grief like thine. Here, here, here might I stay and sing. This is my friend, my friend indeed. And whose sweet praise all my days I would gladly spend. Never was love like thine. We can't emphasize the tense of verbs and overplay them at times. While that's true, John says not to him who did love us, but to him who 
is loving us. This is a present tense active love from him who is loving us. He moves the next. He moves tenses from him who is loving us. Next line to him who has freed us. So I think John means us to hear some sort of distinction because he changes tenses. And this present tense reminds us of Christ present ongoing disposition towards us. There is no, I used to love you. I used to love you more. I will love you better. He is loving us with all that he is now at this moment. Listen, if you're here as an unbeliever, or somebody struggling, even from the inside with Jesus, would you think about this, that the love that you seek, the love that we all seek is only found in Jesus. Because the love of Christ is the only love that endures. Here's what I mean. Everybody else you love will either die on you, they will disappoint you, or they'll turn on you. But Jesus Christ comes to you as the only one who knows you fully, and yet he loves you truly. He's the firstborn back from the dead, and only his love can endure. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, became a psychologist after the war. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. One of the things Frankel points out, one of the main things he points out in that book is that people who survived alongside of him in those Nazi death camps tended to be those people who had hope and who had the thought of a loved one sustaining them. But now listen, but now listen, if love is so powerful that it can sustain people in that kind of sorrow and suffering, what will sustain us when the love ends or turns on you? What will sustain you then? You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who fully knows you and he loves you. This is the only love that will last. And even when we die, we're brought into heaven, which Jonathan Edwards described heaven. It's a world of love. So now as believers and churches like ours stare into the reality, the possibility of being alone, of being sidelined, comes a reminder to these seven churches, they are not alone and they are most certainly not unloved. Here's the focus of our faith and suffering. Whatever's happening to you isn't because he stopped loving you. He is loving you right now. But not only to him who loves us. Next, John focuses our faith. To, he, he's done something else. What is it? Look back at verse five to him who loves us. And second, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. With these words, John reminds us. How Christ has loved us, is loving us, and why we needed it. John seems to allude to that period in ancient Israel when they were under slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. And God's people were in servitude in Egypt, under bondage. They were enslaved, they were helpless, and they were hopeless. There was no way out. They needed to be freed. And every reader of Revelation in John's day knew how ancient Israel was freed from that slavery. Well, I asked to highlight the point, but were they freed from an elite force of Navy SEALs? Was their freedom won from the strategic strike of a drone missile or a coalition of allied forces? God freed his people in a way that nobody saw coming, that no nation uses on its flag when it goes into war. A lamb. God took the blood of a lamb and as his people spread the blood of a lamb along the sides and tops of the door frame, the death of the lamb, it shed blood in their place, meant their freedom from bondage. It was their deliverance through the judgment of this lamb in their 
place. Now, in time, the biblical writers will take this dramatic and literal Passover. They will take this event where their freedom from bondage was run through the blood of a lamb, where their deliverance came through judgment. Biblical writers will look back to this event and say that redemption pictured and pointed to a greater one to come. And indeed, the Passover pointed to the cross itself, where Jesus freed us from our bondage by dying in our place as a lamb. Now think about that. Do you think you're in bondage this morning? Our world does say, here's a cultural narrative, that following our desires leads to freedom, that our desires are unquestioned guides to truth, that, and that all authority outside of the individual is actually harmful and detrimental. This is an assumed way of looking at life that shows up everywhere, from Marvel movies to Taylor Swift to Philosophical notions of gentle parenting. But are our desires actually that reliable? Should we grant our desires that type of norming authority even among our children? What if, what if, what if following our desires doesn't free us but enslaves us? How so? Well, think about it in your own life. Here are three examples maybe. See if this helps. I don't know. What what if we are not simply driven by task lists and planning, but we're actually enslaved by them? What if we're not simply driven by helping people, but we're enslaved to their approval? What if we're not simply driven by success and achievement, but we're slaves to it? We're achievement junkies. Do you see? The Bible reveals that the great problem beneath all of our problems in life is this, that we're enslaved. We're in bondage to our desires. Just like ancient Israel was in bondage before Pharaoh, we are in bondage by our own desires, our own wishes, our own dreams, and their hopelessness and helplessness pictures our own. Only we need friends. We need not to be freed from Pharaoh. We need to be freed from ourselves. We need not to be saved from death. You need to be saved from God. That's the transfer of the image. The songwriter Andrew Peterson puts it like this. Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither brick, nor sand, nor mud. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains. Yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has freed us by his blood. The lamb in the Exodus points to Jesus, the lamb who died at the cross in our place on account of the sins of all those who put their hope in him. We have been freed, loosed from the shackles of our sins and God's good judgment passed over us and landed on Christ and we are free. Think of the contrast, though, because in this book of Revelation, while the sins of God's enemies continue to pile up, ready for judgment. The sins of those who've turned away have already been loosed, freed by the blood of Christ. 
Hear and heed the words of this book. Hold fast to Christ because the one who gives you these words is the one whose body was rent to pieces so that you could heed these words to him who loved us and freed us by his blood. And what has he freed us from? Think for a moment again. Do another pass. He's freed us from the power of sin, from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the domination of sin, from the misery of sin. We are freed indeed from sin. And as the threat then of imprisonment and fine looms large to the members of these seven churches, here comes the sovereign Christ back from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who says, I have freed you by my blood. My Angelou can write, I know why the caged bird sings. But John writes why imprisoned Christians can sing. I've been freed by the blood of Christ. And what a vivid contrast. Did you note the contrast or think about it with me? What a vivid contrast between Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth and the actual kings of the earth. How so? Kings of the earth require you to give up your blood for them. But here's one king who shed his blood to make you his. Do you see the marvelous juxtaposition? The ruler of the kings of the earth has shed his blood for you and for me. Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would say, not my will, but thine, Lord? The answer I may never know why he ever loved me so. And to an old rugged cross he'd go, who am I to him who loved us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood? John has one more aspect of Christ's work he wants to focus us on. Look at verse 6. Christ has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Perhaps if the previous phrase shows us the work of the Lamb, this phrase now shows us the Lamb having done his work, the worth of his people. Because far from being imprisoned and rejected and slandered and sidelined, John reminds these churches of their redemptive worth. Christ has made you a kingdom, priest to his God and his Father. Now, as to the previous phrase, John was alluding back to Exodus. Because after God had freed his people by the blood of the Lamb, he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. We looked at this in our prayer service. The, the motor should be running. The engine of your heart should be preheated already. But as people recently freed from slavery, they're still quite vulnerable to starvation, to attack. And at just that moment, God wants to remind these new people what they've been saved from and why they've been saved. He reminds them what he did for them. You remember what I did to the Egyptians and how I delivered you. And then God reminds them what he's made of them now that he's redeemed them. You are my treasured possession among all peoples. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This newly redeemed people then get a brand new identity. They're no longer slaves of Egypt. No longer possessed by Pharaoh, beaten like a beast of burden. They are now possessed by God, but not possessed by a slave, but possessed like a man treasures his treasure. Now, they've gone from being 
property of Pharaoh to being the treasure of God. And if men guard and protect their treasure, what will God do for his treasure? Not only are they his treasure, they are his kingdom. No more slaves, but representatives, priests of God. Not objects of scorn, but God's treasure on display. Not slaves, but now a kingdom, priests to God. And it's this very situation and description that John now takes from there and applies to the context of these seven suffering churches. What a marvelous, ennobling identity. Every bit as precious to these believers in Revelation as it was to them now. And maybe more so. Because God's people in Exodus were coming out of spiritual oppression while the believers in John's day, like we are, were still in the thick of it. How precious of John to remind them of their heritage, to tell them about their roots, to tell them who they are and where they're from. When the world in their day thought little of them, grew in hostility towards them, John reminds us who they've always been. Remember your roots. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are a kingdom, priests to God, rejected by the world but the very people God makes up his kingdom with. Now, at one level, by addressing these churches with the descriptions he uses for Israel, as as Israel was God's kingdom, so you now are, this description shows us a deep solidarity, a connection, a deep history that goes way back. I'm always fascinated. Have you seen the show uh, Henry Gates, Find Your Roots? I'm fascinated by this show. Every time it comes on, my kids are like, don't stop and watch that. I'm fascinated by it. Well, when you can be a dad, you can be in charge of this. But right now, I am with the clicker. <laughs> I'm always intrigued by the show. As they do a deep dive in Americans to trace their family history as far back as they can go to help them find their roots. We all want to know our heritage, where we came from. People are surprised by their roots. Find out somebody significant and, and your back straightens. And you, yes, this is who I am. But sometimes finding about where we're from can be a surprise. It often is. Let me give you negative and then go to a positive what's happening here. Recently, a host of The View who has insisted for her lifetime for racial reparations repeatedly and publicly was shocked when, 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 when Henry Gates told her that her family actually owned slaves and that she was actually descended from the very people she deemed as colonizers. Now, in her childhood, her mother had taken her to protest, she says, and social justice rallies. This was her identity. But now, as she finds out from this Find Your Roots show, her real heritage, she's shocked. She's shocked because she had built her whole identity on something that wasn't true. She made a living finding other people culpable for what her own family line was complicit in. Friends, sin is far more complicated than reparations. And according to Romans 1 and 3, if you go down any road like reparations far enough, what you will find is what the host of the view found that Paul tells you. There is not one righteous. No, not one. Thomas Sowell 
who's the African-American scholar of Harvard and Stanford, said that if there's one thing that people groups from all over the world, from all times, have in common, if there's one thing every nation and people group has in common, it's this. Every people group has been involved in slavery. He notes that decades after the American conflict and blacks were freed, white people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire. And you know what Soul's research shows us? You know what the host of the view find out? Exactly what Romans said, that every one of us has sinned and every one of us has come short of the glory of God. The entire human race shares one thing in common. We're all guilty. All guilty. Our only hope then is for the Christ, that he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And when he does, he makes us into a kingdom, a priest and friend. Listen, if you have never owned your guilt and done something courageous, taken responsibility for your sin, admitted your self-righteousness, you cannot ever be part of his kingdom. But you can this very moment. Admit your guilt. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. But but now think what a surprise now. It is for John a different kind of surprise to reveal the roots of these seven churches by describing these Christians in these seven churches and the way God described them coming out of Egypt far from being cut off. Then here's the surprise. You've been brought in. You've not been excluded. You've been included into God's kingdom. You've been made with a purpose, redeemed for a purpose. Our roots go way back to Exodus where God redeemed his people. Those are your people. We are God's people. These seven churches, you're not alienated. You're not, you're not exposed, but you belong. Your roots don't go back to the Mayflower pilgrims. That would be pretty cool. Your roots don't go back to some royal house in Europe. That would be pretty cool. Your roots are deeper than that. God has brought you into his kingdom and made you part of a kingdom of which he spoke in Exodus. So it shows us the connection we have with the past and not only with the past, but with each other now because he writes to seven churches and he wants those seven churches and those members to see, I'm not just saying you belong to Christ. But this whole congregation belongs to Christ. It's individuals made into a kingdom, made into a priesthood. You can't have a kingdom without other people. Unless you're a narcissist and a solipsist, and that's not a kingdom, that's an island. You were created and redeemed to be part of something bigger than yourself. Bigger than you, yourself, and a few friends that you would pick to hang out with. We are brought out from the Egypt of our sin to join with a visible body of believers, the kingdom of God, priests. The image then comforts us, telling us that we do belong. We do have a place. We do have a home. It tells you, you can't fight sin alone. You can't resist the dragon of Revelation 12, that old serpent by yourself. You need the resources of a kingdom to help you. John's language is showing us the priority of gathering every Lord's Day in person. And as these Christians suffered, they would be tempted. I'll just stay home. It's not worth showing up. You ever felt like that? You're not the only one. It's a lie. 
We're fellow citizens. We need one. Like an individual coal thrown out of a fire, it loses its heat and loses its warmth. You need to be together to glow together. I don't know, was that dumb? You know what I mean. Glow together? I mean, you. But we need to be together. We're not just lumps of coal. We're a kingdom. Take that one. We're a kingdom. We witness as, as priests, as representatives now, we bear witness corporately to the reign of Christ by our love for one another, by our holiness, and by our loving confrontation of others with this good news of the kingdom. Because we are a people, a people who rather than fear the darkness of the world, we bear witness to the light. We are those who've been called out of darkness to show forth marvelous praise, to walk into the darkness. Not stay at home and be a keyboard warrior about all the things you see around you. We've been called out of darkness. What a privilege is ours as a church family. Far from being alone, we belong. Far from huddling up, we advance. Far from being afraid, even as we suffer, we advance. We pray, gladly bearing the reproaches of Christ. For we are loved. We've been redeemed. We are children of the king. We're priests with the honor of showing forth his praises as a body. And you know what you say to that if you're thinking right? The same things John says at the end of verse 7. What did John say? When he thought about Christ's love and his forgiveness and our corporate bond, John breaks into doxology and he says, to him be glory and dominion forever. And John knows good preaching when he hears it. So he says, amen. You see, see, here's what John does. He pauses now to praise the Christ he's been describing. To him who loves us and freed us and made us belong to Christ. Wait a minute. Let me pause now and give praise to Christ. To him be glory and dominion now and forever. It's not enough. Think about this with me for the next few moments. It's not enough to get facts into your head. You have to work his love into your heart. And one way you do that is by pausing to praise. Think of the connection between thinking of Christ's love and then working his love into your heart like this. I hope it's not too silly. I shared one of these with my daughter yesterday, and she said that's silly, but I'm going to go for it. Okay, I'm going to go for it. The, the connection between, between thinking about Christ and then working it into our heart. It's one, thing, it's one thing to make a sandwich and get it all there. It's another thing to eat it and get it inside of you. It's one thing to load up the weight bar. It's another thing to get up under it and feel the weight. What's the point? And thinking about Christ's love, John has loaded the weight bar. And at verse 7 ends, he gets underneath it and feels the weight of it. It's all the difference in the world. What is John doing? After focusing faith on Christ's work, he pauses to praise. He stops to worship and work this truth into his soul. The pausing to praise then becomes a means of our endurance. To him be glory forever. You know what that means? I think it means this. If you are not, until we are worshiping him from our heart, with our heart, we won't endure. Listen, this opening of greeting of John in verses 4 to 8, John's not filling your head, he's filling your heart. And in the Bible, heart doesn't mean your emotions, but the seat of your being, your affections, everything about us. You see what John's done in describing Christ? He pauses to praise him. He breaks into worship to work it into his heart. And then God, therefore, in this greeting, in this book, is coming after affections. Worship me, he says. There's no one like me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look how? Look full into his wonderful face. That's what John doing to these hurting churches. All of these truths then, all of these truths then are meant to strike our hearts like lightning strikes a lightning rod. 
When lightning strikes a rod, it doesn't stop there. It strikes and it spreads. And this vision of Christ is meant to strike our thoughts and spread to every part of our being. Let it strike and spread. The promise of the Godhead's Trinitarian favor and presence, the promise of Christ's incomparable love are not only promises to stand on, but promises to stand under. These are not promises to master, but promises to be mastered by. Have you learned the difference? Have we learned the difference? And one way you know that's happening or one way, one means for it happening is you pause to praise just like John did at the end of verse six. To be so taken in and up by God's character and the love of Christ that it causes you to hold tighter to the one who first loved you. Oh, would you let me hold your hand, brave stranger? You remember that from the end of last week? Those are the words of that seamstress at the end of the tale of two cities. She's on her way to the guillotine and, and she realizes the stranger she's walking to the gallows to is dying in the place of the number. And she says, oh, could I hold? And as she holds his hand, she realizes what's happened. She says, oh, could I hold your hand, brave stranger? Now, as you come to see that Christ is the faithful witness, the one who died in your place, the one who freed you by his love, then we come to say to him, oh, would you let me hold your hand, brave savior? Would you let me hold your hand, brave savior? Focusing on Christ's work is one way to steal you for suffering, to fill your heart with resolve, your faith with resiliency, and hold fast until he comes because he's on his way. I said there are two things. Now let's focus on the second thing. This is Christ's work, but the other is focusing on Christ's wrath. Look at verse 7. I, I think this is the point. We even sung about God's wrath and our song Lo, he comes. Behold, that's what we've been doing. We've been trying to behold him, but now I want you to behold him in a different way. He's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Remember we said the last two weeks, the way to understand Revelation is to read the Old Testament. Now, John's making another allusion. This time, two more allusions. He's alluding to the book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah. And he takes two allusions and he puts them in the same vision here. In Daniel 7, we looked at that for two weeks in a row. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and that's God. But then he also sees one like the Son of Man who's coming to the Ancient of Days. And as Daniel sees one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, here's what, John, here's what Daniel sees. There was before me one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. In the Bible then, and in keeping with apocalyptic imagery, the symbols, the clouds, are not details of meteorological significance. They're, they're a symbol of divine authority. If one comes with clouds then, it means one comes with power from on high. Moreover, how did God often reveal himself to his people in the Old Testament? Did he not lead them by a cloud by day? Did he not descend on the tabernacle and appear in a cloud? And even in Exodus 19 that we read this morning, did he not appear in a cloud to them there as well? Clouds then are a picture of God's sovereign presence, of his arrival, of his coming down, showing up because he's got work to do. Thus, after speaking of Christ and all of his glory, of his redeeming love, now John turns and he's startled. He's startled because now he not only sees the slain Christ and the risen Christ, now he sees the returning Christ who's coming with clouds to judge as the Son of Man was predicted to do. Behold, he says, here comes Christ with clouds. That means this is Daniel's Son of Man, the august Son of Man, who's coming with clouds to judge the living and the dead. 
what Daniel foresaw, John now sees. And having said, here's a beautiful connection. Having said, hear and heed Christ's words for he's coming soon. John now turns. He can't get out of the first chapter and says, in fact, he's already on his way. He's already coming. Behold, he comes. And at his first coming, the Son of Man came to save. But now, behold, in his second coming, the Son of Man comes with clouds, not to save, but to judge. Those hearing the words of this book, then be warned of falling away from Christ. Because you've rejected him as your Savior, you will face him as your judge. And what effect will Christ's grand coming with clouds as a Son of Man in judgment have? Well, John tells you what effect it will have. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. As is so common, John changes images in mid-sentence. He moves now from this image of Daniel to Zechariah, like images change fast in your dream. And how did that get put together? But in Zechariah 12.10, the prophet Isaiah foresees a day when they will look on him they pierced, on Jesus And will mourn, and Zechariah says, and wail like somebody who's lost a child. The deepest possible grieving. That's why the song this morning we said just didn't say wailing, but deeply wailing. Deeply wailing. And now at one level that happened in some measure at the cross. They looked on him who they pierced and they wailed. But notice that John helps us see the full horizon of Zechariah's intent. He adds here what Zechariah didn't say. Every eye Not just those who look on him, but every eye will see him and will wail. That means it happened at the cross. Literally, it happens today symbolically as people in every age who in effect by their enmity and apathy have joined in the act of crucifixion against the Son. And one day those words will come to pass again when Christ will descend bodily and visibly and we'll all know it when he happens and he'll do so with clouds just as he ascended to heaven the first time with clouds. And when he does, there will be a weeping and wailing. In a sense, John's every eye, it is coming in the future, but there's a sense that John's every eye puts us all at the moment of the cross In other words, John, like a master painter, is painting us into the scene. Just as Rembrandt painted himself into the image of the cross. Or or Mel Gibson's own hand held the nails in the actor's feet in the film. And the passion of only his hand appears. He's putting himself there. That's what John's doing here. Every eye brings us, past and present, into that event and brings us into the scene. Moreover, every eye will see him when he returns. And when he comes, it will be like it was at his death. People will see Jesus, the one pierced. But this time he will not come to save. He will come to judge. And there will be wailing. Not wailing in repentance, but in terror and rebellion because it will be too late. Here's the Son of Man coming in wrath to judge. Jesus himself picks up all of this in Matthew 24. And he said, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. And then will appear the sight of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn as the Son of Man comes in clouds to judge. And there will be a weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, how terrible is the scene that John sees. 
No wonder he says, behold. Because anyway, who walks away from worshiping the lamb who refuses to will fall into the hands of this son of man. And what weeping and wailing there will be as Christ stomps on the wicked like a man stomps on grapes. That's the picture in Revelation. Will that, friend, will that be you? It's the weeping. This isn't the, maybe like this. It's not the weeping of repentance, but it's the weeping of, it's, it's the fictional weeping of Gollum over his ring as he falls into Mount Doom. It's the weeping of Judas as he hangs himself. He wept, but refused to repent. So hard is the human heart, so deep human depravity, that not even the judgment of God Almighty on its own will turn back the sinner, but only harden him in his rebellion. John sees that very thing happening here. In Revelation 16, here's what John sees. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. But they did not repent. The gnashing of the teeth. You won't make me God. Weeping. Here's the hubris of the human heart. The obdurate nature of rebellion. The entrenched depravity of our souls. The boldness of our defiance in the face of God's wrath. And even the very torments of hell. Men and women will look on whom they pierced and will wail in rebellion still. There is no repentance in hell. This, among other things, is what the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory gets so wrong. It's not their view of God's mercy, but the implacable human heart, the depth of self-willed depravity, the willingness of man to rebel forever, even in torment. Behold, he comes. It will be too late then. They will wail in torment, but not give in. They won't give in. Move to tears, but never move to repent. And let us be warned today. If you don't worship him today, you will wail in everlasting torment at his return. This is one clear message of the entire book of Revelation. Whose wrath do you want to face? The wrath of the Son of Man or the wrath of a man? So blessed are all those who hear his words and hold fast, but cursed are all those who don't. And here's where the reality of Christ's wrath becomes our help for endurance. One of the great confusions of the life, just admit it, it all happens. Maybe it's happening to you this morning. One of the great hurts, confusions of life, one of the temptations is that often those people who hate God and ignore him seem to be doing way better than I am. Thank you very much. And if you just ease up on this God stuff, life will be easier for you. Just look around you, bro. Everybody seems to be doing fine. They are. And your mental health is too precious to be endured to be calling a bigot for holding fast to God's words that we may even have misunderstood anyway. So lighten up or walk away. Stay home from church. Text her back. It won't matter. Click on the leak. Stop calling it sin. And all those things that seem so wise and seem so loving and seem so good for me in the moment until you go to the house of the Lord and you consider their end and remember two things. One, behold, He is coming in clouds and will bring everyone to justice forever. No one will get away with anything. And two, to whom else will we go? 
For only this Christ who loves us and has freed us has these kinds of words of eternal life. And, and as John writes this, as John writes this, he does it again. As John sees the just overthrow of the wicked, the triumph of good, and the vindication of Christians who suffered so much, John starts to exult in it. For he ends saying, even so, amen. He's paused to praise the justice of Christ. Not only his work, but his wrath and the worship of Christ and his wrath will sustain you for blessed are all those who keep his words. And John's brief praise then gives. Did you know one of the most often repeated praise choruses in Revelation is people throughout this book repeatedly praise God for the wrath of the lamb who's come upon the ungodly. All the saints sing again and again, just and true are your ways and who will not praise you, O Lord. So now let the sureness of his love and the certainty of his wrath, the sureness of his love and the certainty of his wrath keep you from sin and sustain your faith until he comes. For behold, he comes. Hold on. I love you. I will judge evil. I'm coming soon. You know, at the end of Revelation, Tim Keller has a phrase he puts like this. What if in Christianity... You don't have an airtight argument, but what you actually have is an airtight person who loves you, who's freed you, who's made you and given you a purpose. There's no love like his. There's no one like him in his justice. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Hold on. He loves you. He's coming soon.